Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis. Uh, tonight we have with us uh, part-time host, full-time social media genius, Kathleen. Say hi, Kathleen. Um, some of you out there who are watching this, some of our patrons and some of our loyal Talk Gnosis watchers, listeners, haven't actually met Kathleen yet because we recorded an interview with her and we actually did an entire other show of her as co-host, but that was before we started doing the show live again. So, And we're bereft of a video editor. By the way, if you're out there and you want to edit video for us, uh, holler at me. And our guest tonight is Father Bray Weaver, coming to us live from Denver, Colorado. Uh, Father is the uh, parish priest of St. Mary's uh, and Apostolic Joanite Church Parish in Denver, Colorado. Uh, say hi, Father. Hello. Hello. Uh, really exciting show tonight. I know I say that every time, but it's because I mean it every time. Uh, another show that I've been wanting to do uh, for years and years and years and years and years. The show's been running for eight years, so for eight years I've been wanting to do a show on Druidry. And not only is uh, Father Bray uh, within the Apostolic Joanite Church, uh, he is also involved with uh, Druidry. So he's going to chat uh, about it uh, with us. So uh, again, uh, I know I say this every time, but genuinely authentically, really amped, really excited to get into a topic that is very dear to my heart in some ways, but that I have not fully jumped into and I'm not that knowledgeable about. So I think everybody out there is going to get a lot out of this, myself included. Uh, Father Bray will just jump right on into it. Uh, this is Whenever we have people from different faith traditions or who are involved in perhaps a few different traditions, we always have a tricky opening question for them. And the opening question tonight is, can you tell us what Druidry is? Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a nature-based faith. But more than that, it's really a, a codified system of approaching both society and nature in a very unique and peaceful way. Uh, it's really peace that drives a Druid's heart. You can't, you can't understand Druidry without understanding peace itself. So it is one of the nature-based religions. It, it's an op, it was one of the first things that, that came out of shamanism as shamanism started to really codify into, into societal factors. But what most people don't understand is that it was highly influenced by other areas as well. Uh, like if you get a bunch of Roman Catholics together, they from various areas, they're speaking Latin. The Druids actually spoke Greek. They were highly influenced by a lot of the Grecian mysteries and oh. and uh, Neoplatonism and Platonism at the time, honestly. Uh, they went back that far. So they were influenced by a lot of the Western ideas and everything and defined most of Western Europe, to be honest. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think things I already didn't know. I didn't realize there's that many mm -hmm. intersections. Now, I noticed that in some ways it's something close to my heart because uh, I grew up on a on a very small island where when I was growing up, about 90% of the population, 95% of the population were, uh, were of Scottish and Irish uh, background, uh, heritage. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that comes out uh, in my voice uh, if I talk really fast and or if I just finish talking to my mother or if I have a beer, I sound like the Lucky Charms leprechaun. So <laughs> I, I was, I, I have had a, a long time fascination with sort of Celtic mysticism without 
you know, diving deep into it because between the AJC and some other pursuits, I've already got a lot on my plate. But I've often said, and perhaps this is in my future, uh, that if I had not discovered the AJC, you know, I, I would be out dancing around a maypole as we speak. But how how did you discover Druidry and, and what drew you to it? Yeah. I think that the question should really be the other way around because I was born into a pagan tradition. Um, my parents were the, the priest and priestess of the Church of Seven Arrows, which was Native American. The first church that I ran was actually a Druid church the, for the Henge of Keltry in the mid-90s. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've been involved in paganism my entire life. It was the tradition that I was born into. Where I found uh, the question then would be, how is it that I came to the Joanite faith as a result mm -hmm. of that? And really it's because if you take the, the neo-pagan traditions back far enough, you inextricably run into the Templars. Right. So you just can't avoid it. Um, the Druid tradition, it, it, some of the schools, some of the Bardic schools lasted up into the, into the 19th century. But at the same time, the total amount of information that they had when they started to recreate that tradition was equivalent to about three pages. There were some actors in there like Elo Morguan and stuff like that that came up and said, oh, here's this tradition and everything. And, and they've largely been discredited as, as what that was. But it was held by the Templars as a part of the Grail tradition and they pass that forward. So really to study neo-paganism, you're in a way you're studying Templarism and you're studying Joanite traditions. They go back, they're so intrinsically linked there that they're not really separate in my mind. It's uh, a matter of implementation mm -hmm. rather than theology. Where, what are some of those symbols that you see really pertinent in Druidry that you also see corresponding with the Joanite tradition? The most significant of them is the Awen itself. The, the symbol of the Awen is a symbol of three rays dropping down with three dots that are surrounded by circles of the, of the natural world. But it is that those three rays of inspiration and, and to talk about Awen, you can almost make it synonymous with Gnosis. I mean, it is, it is that same kind of enlightening energy that comes to us and ironically it also comes to us in druidry through three rays the same as it comes to us through kabbalah and the in the you know hulk mabana and qatar and it comes to us in you know uh the the christian tradition through the father the son and the holy spirit what are the three rays in druidry just out of curiosity now you have me interested they are so numerous as to count. Uh, oh, the three rays, the three rays. Yeah, the three rays and their relationships are so numerous. Everything in Druidry announces itself around three. Uh, you know, even their teachings come to them in, uh, in, te in triads is what they're called in terms of this is a statement almost like a, you could sometimes think of it as a Zen cone. You could sometimes think of it as a... Um, as kind of a, a small wisdom teaching, but they're all organized in threes as well. So it's that triplicate nature that, that's important. If you, if you get right down to it, probably 
probably the most basic element of that would be the Triskelion. And Druids have three elements instead of four in their natural world. Oh, so fire is fire is related to plasm. It's a it's an aspect of spirit. It's not it's not one of the material elements. So they show their elements as um, as the Triskelion three three kind of interlocking and connected uh, spirals. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned uh, uh, previously that when they were coming back to Druidry or setting it back up or restarting it, that, that they only had three pages worth of material. So is Druidry, yeah. like, it, it's not an unbroken tradition? Some of it's been, been no. lost? No, it, it's it's not unbroken at all. And the, the largest attempt actually to, to recreate it comes to us through the Drail, Grail tradition, which was... Um, 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 oh, geez, his name is eluding me at the moment. He wrote the Arthurian romances, uh, Creat de Troyes. So he wrote the originals of that. What's interesting about Creat de Troyes is that his niece was uh, Catherine de Clairvaux, who was uh, Oude Payen's wife. What? So Creat de Troyes was... Uh, was related to the first generation of Templars there. He was also a Druid, but he changed a lot of the names. The, the, the Templars had gone to the Holy Land to collect um, documents related to, uh, to Kabbalah. And as they were translating them, Crean was one of the ones that was doing that. So he took a lot of the old, the old Druid legends and everything and he changed their names slightly to make the the gematria line up. So, you know, like um, Arthur lines up with Jesus, Camelot lines up with Jerusalem, and there was a codified attempt to to make the Grail tradition a single whole there. But it it encoded significant portions of Druidry into it as a result of that. Do you have any orders or groups you would recommend for people that maybe are interested, ones that maybe you've been involved with, mm -hmm. where you found something of substance? Um, the the best lines that I've found right now are the AODA, which is a wonderful organization, and it links back. Um, they also run the the Gnostic Celtic Church, which the original Celtic Church was a Thomasian church out of Alexandria. So a lot of the Druids in the later ages there, they, there was this blending that occurred there where they became very Thomasian. It's more noticeable in the Nordic uh, flavors of it, which is where my history is from, but that, that tradition is one that's on fire right now. It's, uh, it's been absconded in so many different ways and for so many different purposes. But you still see the old stave churches there, and they related that they related that mixed hybrid tradition to a serpent religion. Uh, and the reason is, is because they looked at the Christ mythology, saw him going into a cave and coming out, shedding his shroud and coming out resplendent and new. They saw it as being very serpentine. So that, that mixed religion that was there of Druids kind of embracing more of the Thomasian tradition of Gnosticism was seen as very, being very, very um, serpent. And you see it in the stave churches and things like that. 
most of it hasn't survived. There's a couple of monks that I've been able to find in his, in uh, Ireland that still hold pretty fast to that tradition, but they're so few and far between and so very, very difficult to find. Yeah. Um, th that is fascinating though, and, and how they brought those traditions together. And I'm assuming that they didn't see them um, as opposed to each other, right? Like you, you even said no. uh, that they made the connections in their own mind of of Christ's resurrection, the shedding of the of the shroud and and the snake. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not a someone coming in with a sword saying you have to convert to Christianity right now, mm -hmm. but perhaps um, connections being made between traditions. Yeah, very much so, and common lineage through. Uh... I mean, remembering that, that many of the Druids were studying in Greece and they were studying in Alexandria and places like this. Right. These were hotbeds for both the Joanite and the Thomasian tradition. You know, the Thomasian tradition probably moved forward because it had a little bit better stranglehold in Alexandria at the time mm. than, uh, than the Joanite tradition, which was more focused around Greece. Well, I think already, uh, you know, just a few questions in, I think you've already dispelled perhaps a few misconceptions that people might have about this tradition and connections that people would have never have known about or made, particularly with the connections between ancient Greece and the Middle East and these other traditions. But in the public imagination, if I say Druid to somebody, they're going to think of magic, Stonehenge, and uh, even human sacrifice, the Wicker Man. So yeah, yeah. are... are are these are these parts of the tradition then? Are they parts of the tradition now? And is this a, a path that's perhaps more orientated towards what we might call magic, as in you're trying to uh, have a concrete result in the physical world, a healing, money coming towards you? Or is it more of a, a path, a self-transformation through connecting with nature? Well, it's it's self-transformation by via looking at the at the mind of divine and as it unfolds itself in nature and specifically around trees stars and uh and stones so those those three elements are pretty specific there originally though it was actually a social movement um so when we talk about druidry we need to understand that there's really three different components to it again three what they had were they there was a bunch of the kind of the priestcraft at the time realized that there were all these divergent groups and everything and that they were warring and feudal between each other throughout a lot of Europe. And what they did is they they formed these three groups to to kind of go through and work with that. So the first was the bards. And the bards, what they held was the tradition. They held the stories. They held the music. They held the art. And they would wander through these different groups and they would take the best of the stories and they would share and cross pollinate other stories to create a common tradition, a common heritage that people could abide by. Mm. The next group was the Ovates and they, they were both the healers and also the seers. So they linked in both, um, both the divine, the divinatory aspects as well as the healing aspects. And what they would do is even today, we underestimate the the ability of medicine to to unite people and to define morality. Uh, like when I was a kid, homosexuality was not okay. Then it was, and what changed is psychology said, "No, this is a path for health. We're moving it in the DSM. We're making this something that's that's acceptable, and we're saying that this is a that this is a path towards health and healing." 
so the the ovates in so many ways define morality that way they defined what health was and health was is an aspect and it always has been a morality the third component is actually the druids proper and they were they kind of unified society in that they they held almost a philosophical place with the with the chieftains they also held a, they were the priests that, that officiated ceremonies and life transitions and things like that and they were also the uh, judiciary so they were the court system as well um, so through those elements they there was a codified effort to to unite large parts of Europe and they were largely successful in that but when I say it's peace that really drives a druid's heart, mm -hmm. that's what it is. They were attempting to, to unite all of these warring traditions and all of these warring tribes into a codified whole through these different aspects of, of Awen reaching the people, whether that be through art, through health, through guidance, through ceremony. All of those things were incorporated into that, and it created a common mythology created a commonality between the people that united them into well what ended up being larger um larger more effective tribes so did they meet any i'm sure they met resistance trying to do that are there any specific druids that really stood out to you as people to look up to um, facing the, that kind of resistance? Sadly, most of their stories are lost or never recorded. Um, what we do have is we have uh, traditions like the bards that were running around, you know, carrying this information. It was a capital offense to kill a bard, as an example. Mm. There has to be a reason for that. And while we're what we're told is that it's because they held all the knowledge and that that knowledge had value. But I think that there's probably more practical reasons to it as well. Yeah. It, talking about different traditions, it, it almost makes me think of um, Rosicrucianism, right? Where there's uh, the Rosicrucian uh, mission to reform the world and bring it together, united through uh, religion, through art. Uh, the, the way that you explain Druidry in the ancient world, it, it really was a full societal system. Is that right? That it is, it's religion, it's healing, it's art with the idea of bringing people together uh, through peace. Yes, yeah. very much so. I mean, and that was, that was the original social movement. Now it's much more approached, um, it's much more approached as an individual endeavor that way. You know, and I think honestly, I've often lamented that, that the Druids of old, if they'd have seen if they'd have seen the world today and realized that what they did is build larger and larger you know, uh, uh, groups that, that were able to take on higher degrees of sophistication and, you know, uh, lead to a lot of the imperialism that, that say, England put out and things like that, uh, they probably would have been mortified by, by the results of the, the ultimate results of their actions in that. But uh, still the intention of it is, is always towards peace. Um, yeah, there's there is a lot there though. So. Yeah, a hundred percent. Now, who are some of the for the religious aspects of it? Like, who are some of the important deities and spirits and druidry, and and why are these deities important? Oh, they change. 
they change based on traditions, but really Bridget is one of the most popular ones. Uh, in modern Druidry, there's been much more of an emphasis to move it towards um, towards the goddess type faiths and to to look at it as almost an as almost a feminine alternative uh, to to um, very masculine religions that are out there. The masculine is certainly there, and and that's where some of the Wicker Man comes from and stuff. But it's a much more hidden aspect of those traditions. Bridget and you know uh, the the old crone kind of images that we find in winter, depending on which tradition and what what the culture calls them, are very very popular in that. Bridget is fantastic. I mean, she's she's a smith. She runs the wells. She's you know a warrioress. She's a poet. She's you know she has this very Joan of Arc, Esclarmont de Foix kind of kind of archetype about her that that I think is particularly empowering and very potent in today as a as kind of a, a manifestation of that Sophianic energy, if you will. Yeah. And she's been Christianized as you guessed it, Saint Bridget. So yeah. they didn't really yes. they, didn't, yeah, they didn't really put a whole lot of work in covering up no. <laughs> that one at all. No. Yeah. No. You know, and so much of the I mean, there's specifics to the church year uh, that we have, but at the same time, so much of it from Advent, you know, to to Christmas, to Candle Mass, to, you know, Easter, all of these things very much track the, the, uh, the pagan holidays as well. And that could be because of abscondation, or it could just be because that's what the world is doing at that time, and it's a universal experience, but yeah, exactly. probably a bit the of both. <laughs> yeah, probably a bit of both. I, I think you're right. Some uh, sometimes we do overemphasize some pagan roots because I think it just does kind of spring out of if you're in the northern hemisphere, you're making these connections. So, you yeah. know, ha Halloween is is a time of All Hallows Eve is a time of death because everything around you is dying. You know, <laughs> um, uh, in bulk candle mass. Okay, I can say to see that the days are getting longer. Resurrection in the spring. This seems much more obvious, I think, for people who are closer to the earth than many of us are now. That's actually my next question. Closer to the earth, like I'm imagining that that a lot of druids live in villages, towns, big cities. Do they do they go out into nature? Do they commune with nature? When I ask about deities and spirits, do you try to find a um, a place of nature close to you and, and connect to the spirits there? Uh, I, I think that the answer that the, the question that you're asking is really uh, could be equated to, you know, do Christians pray and it, some do and some don't, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's a very, it's supposed to be fundamental to the faith and something that we all practice. Um, I think that it's one of those aspects that, that is missing a lot of the neo-pagan movement has a tendency to kind of define itself in its opposition or resistance. Mm -hmm. um, but the, um, but the, uh, it's much more important, I think, that we define ourselves in our interactions as opposed to our, we define ourselves by what it is that we are doing, not what it is that we aren't doing. Yeah. You know, and and it's easy to, it's easy to start to rebel. And I think that it's one of those stages that people have to go through in order to kind of move away from something in order to kind of self-define, you have to have that rebellious energy. But 
it it can't carry for too long. It 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 doesn't have as much sustainability to it, you know, and and it's kind of hollowed to define yourself, to let others define who you are by your opposition to what that is. So. Um, I already mentioned growing up surrounded by bagpipes and uh, angry Irish alcoholism, but do you have to be of Celtic descent to be a Druid? No, no, I think, uh, I think if you walk into nature and you allow peace to move you, you connect with it. There was, um, oh geez, I think it was Stuart, one of the very popular Wicca people. I think it was Stuart. I can't remember though. He said, you know, Wicca are Druid school dropouts, <laughs> um, which is, it's a very was, contentious gonna, kind of opinion. Yeah, but. I was going to ask you about Wicca and the difference between yeah. neopaganism and Wicca versus Druidry. So I'm glad you're talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it makes, it makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, it, as they went in and communed and, you know, and practiced and everything, most of the Wicca were, were, um, were, were traditionally and, uh, and originally doing Druidic, Druidic kind of ceremonies with the rest of their culture. Wicca itself has picked up and absorbed a lot of that. And neo-paganism makes it very easy. I mean, when it, when it started to come back, I mean, there's the big three, you know, Gerald Gardner, Alex Sanders, and Newton, you know, and, so there's two forms of Wicca and one form of, of Druidry there, which if you're looking for that form of Druidry, the best place is the uh, Obad, the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, which is a tremendous program, and I would, I would highly suggest it for anybody. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the, the grove that I run right now is an Obad grove in Colorado. Um, it's a wonderful grove. It's a it's a fantastic uh, learning experience, but um, they've picked up a, the Wicca have picked up a lot of that. But the way that they implemented it was very much um, it was folksy. It, you know, it belonged to the house, and I think that what we've lost in in some of those roots is really uh, women's ability to take care of their families. Um, you know, they lost they lost track of a lot of that folk knowledge in order to take care of their families and to support themselves through difficult times there. That's where Druidry really shines. Or I'm sorry, that's where Wicca I think really shines. But I almost look at it a little bit like I look at like um, the the Afro-Caribbean uh, Voodoo cultures in relation to Ifa. Mm -hmm. You know, that it wasn't it wasn't the priestcraft that was moved over to the New World, you know. Consequently, what they had is some peripheral understanding of it, and it manifested itself in a very folksy way that almost seemed um, that it once can very that can seem very um, superstitious oriented. You know, like I don't know why if I rub rub this rag on this and I bury this, it's going to take care of that warp, but it does, right? So Wicca itself in its original form, and please don't take this wrong, I, I care about Wicca very much. But it is it is very essential. It's very superstitious. It's very folksy, and that's that's I think its charm in in that tradition is that it does enable it's something for the common man and not the priestcraft, or in this case, the common woman, because I think it was largely the domain of the household. Yeah. So 
we already touched, I think, again on this before, and I have a couple other questions on our secret question sheet that we've kind of covered, but I'm really interested in this one, and uh, forgive me if you're repeating yourself, but you're also a Gnostic priest, and sometimes the Gnostics, they're called world haters. They see uh, uh, this world as a prison. Well, doesn't this conflict with the, the nature-based religion of Druidry? You know, I think, I don't I think that Gnostic, Gnosticism can go to world-hating. It can very much go there in terms of the, if we go too much into our ascent practices, we start to hate the world and we start to feel as though we're not part of that. And I think that that's one of the problems that we have when we, when we deny the feminine and that kind of more descent practice and Sophia coming down into reality if we deny that aspect of Gnosticism, it's very easy to become world-hating. Mm -hmm. You know, our liturgy itself says, you know, in the, in the darkness of our ignorance, we sorrowfully proclaim that there is nothing holy in the mundane, yet by the light of the sacred flame, we see that there is nothing mundane in the holy. There is this core essentialness that, that there's no real separation between the world itself and the mind of divinity, mm -hmm. that, you know, that it's that, divine consciousness that is reality and that it, it is also divine in our experience here and our creating fruits sometimes we do out of ignorance but it has the the absolute potential to be divinity in and of itself and i think that this is very much in line with with the druid aspects of of looking at the world to see the unfolding of that mind to see the unfolding of that consciousness and in various forms. I, I do have a question and mm -hmm. I, I wanted to ask, what are some Druidic ways of giving back to the earth? Oh, I think, I think um, charity is really important and, you know, the, it finds its way into Druidry as well. And I think that that's a really important practice, but I think the largest thing that you can do is commune. Um, you know, as you approach the plant, this afternoon my wife and I were, were walking around earlier and we were looking at the transition that happens between the Star of Bethlehem this time of year where it starts to diminish and we start to get the, the, uh, uh, the Bellus Perennis that, that, starts to, that starts to bring itself up and recognizing that, you know, like the Star of Bethlehem, it's used in uh, this kind of emotional drama, this kind of really emotional drama that happens, you know, oftentimes it's used whenever we have a uh, incapacity of trusting. Uh, people will, will apply it in like sexual abuse and like emotional abuse of various kinds, things like that where you need to bring that in. And it's one of the first plants that comes up in the spring where it's, it's, bursting its way through the ground to make itself known and understanding the, you know, the, the energies associated with that and how that moves to the, you know, to the Bellus Perennis, the, the, in the Daisy family there, that's, that's often used for like really deep bruised trauma and, you know, these, these physical kind of manifestations and to watch the earth go through that, to know their names, to, to, to understand what they are, to watch their life cycle, 
on one of the Druid walks that I did last year, there was a, there were people that were really surprised because we were talking about uh, rust toxicodendron, which is poison ivy. And in the fall, it turns to red. Well, what happens is, is that, that a lot of the red light that's used is taken up by the green leaves there. And it throws this, this more junk light onto the ground there and everything. And as, as the, the life force of the rust toxicodendron, that, that poison ivy was starting to diminish. We were talking about how, um, how it starts to turn its color red so that it can absorb more of the green light that's there. It can be more effective in that, you know, and it, it, it actually works its chloroplasts in a different way. So really taking the time to notice and to look at what's going on and to, to see and to feel and to understand mm. the earth in your place with that, I think is, is extraordinarily important. And when I was studying acupuncture, um, the points are called dragon's caves with it. And, you know, and you, you push in the, the word there that the, the dragon is juice on leaves. They said, but I remember my teacher saying, you have to speak to Jusan Lee. You, know, you have to call it by name. You have to coax it into, into hoarding its energy or releasing its energy. To, you have to, to, to talk it into what it's doing with its gold there. The same is, is true of the planet and, and the world around you. You have to engage with it and understand it. And, and develop relationship with it, right? Isn't that a part of Druidry as well? Like developing a relationship with yeah. these things, you know? I think so often we uh, want to intellectualize the spirit of the earth and the spirits of all those plants that you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. And it's good to understand these things. But I think that it's like, when we come across a plant, like we're eating food, right? And we're we're going to, it can be anything, whatever. And we're like, oh, I understand this plant. It's easy to just eat it. But, you know, rather than like, thank you. Thank you for, for being the plant you are, for nourishing my body. Thank you for the sun, for helping this plant grow. Thank you for the soil. Thank you for these things. Giving gratitude and developing that kind of heart relationship, right? Which is very Joanite with... Mm -hmm things beyond even humanity with the plants themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's honestly there's a saying in the in the uh, in the Joanine community that to be Joanine is to be Marian. And it's that aspect of of looking looking deeper than what it is into that. It's easy to, you know, onions, uh, the the onions that we often have around here, they're allium sepas. Is their Latin name? That's their name. And it, if we have allergic reactions, if we're having, you know, uh, hay fever or things like that, that's when you would use onions. Rust toxicodendron is great for things like um, poison ivy. Is and don't make sure you know how to use it or you'll use it wrong. But <laughs> but it's really good for for things like um, like arthritis. Um, or stuff like that. A lot of those pains and things that we have are, are really there. Mm. Um, you know, even even rattlesnakes. Um, you know, we ran into a rattlesnake on one of our trips, uh, the Croatus horridus um, there and everything. It, 
the hemorrhagic toxins and stuff like that are one of the things that they that they talk about for like a lot of the hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola and stuff. So really understanding what it is that you're working with, understanding the true nature of it, looking beyond what it is and seeing where it is and where it is in its life cycle is that Marian aspect. It's that it's that descent practice that's so important that we that we never lose sight of. In fact, it's so important that I believe that that there's one unforgivable sin in all of Christianity, and that's to deny the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think that that they looked at that early on, and they said it's so easy to ignore the feminine. It's so easy to ignore these descent practices that we need to write something in here to make sure that it's always has a place that it's never forgotten. You know, and and it's like. I think that they decided that it was that way and said, this is the one unforgivable thing. This is the one thing that if we make it absolutely positively unforgivable, people will be too scared to remove it. And it will always have some place to find an, an expression. Yeah. I wasn't there for that meeting. So it's hypothetical. But. <laughs> I've, I've always interpreted that, uh, that, that passage to say exactly what you are interpreting it to mean and it's funny because that that's been one of the in mainstream mainline christianity um orthodox and proto-orthodox christianity then and now for the last two thousand years people have been trying to figure out what that passage means and haven't gotten a satisfactory uh answer uh so you know if there's any theologians out there just dial us up you know <laughs> just right. eat, call your local gnostic we might call, have the answer we might have the answer we we got that one on lock uh <laughs> father we uh again we, we already touched on this a lot and and we the show's about you know 45 minutes an hour but something we could probably talk about all night is the connections the intersections between druidry and other esoteric traditions so we already talked about templarism uh christianity Wicca, acupuncture. Do you see any other intersections? Because you are quite knowledgeable. You're involved with some other uh, fields of esoteric study. Or if there's not some others, is there anything in the ones that we already touched on that you think are really important uh, symbolic convergences or interesting intersections? Uh, the one thing that's standing out in my mind that I didn't address in the question was you're talking about uh, human sacrifice and stuff like that. And I wanted to, to discuss the, the, the kind of um, the feminine manifests itself in the Virgin, the mother and the crone. Of course, we know that that's really well known. The masculine actually has three archetypes there and pan the green man and the corn king. Pan is this wild youth out there in the nature, you know, not even half human kind of thing. Well, what ends up happening is that there's this terrible, horrible thing, and he encounters the virgin who becomes the mother, and then then there's this sense of hesitation. There's this, what am I going to do, you know, and this green man kind of energy of where am I going? What am I doing? How am I going to interact with this? How do I take responsibility here? Is this appropriate? This is going to change my life. Everything that I know is gone. And then we end up finding that that elevates itself into the wicker man or the corn king, which is burned in effigy. Uh, the, the actual sacrifices, as near as we can tell, were Roman propaganda to try to to try to justify um, 
attacks against druids and everything. To to my knowledge, we've never found anything that really substantiates that. Um, if it happened so, in the community, it wouldn't surprise me, but I, I haven't found anything really substantial about it. But it's that willingness to to really drop yourself, to to sacrifice everything that you are to be burned entirely by it. Now we see two of those cycles in the life of Christ. We see his um, hesitation in prayers before the garden. We see all of those things. And we, then we see this the absolute sacrifice there as well. There's such an impetus to try to make sure that, that Jesus was fully divine, that we don't have anything of his wild, impetuous youth, short of like the, the infancy gospels and things like that, which are all tenuous at best. But, um, but we still see that masculine cycle living itself out there. And that's really where that is, is it's admonishing the masculine to really, to really live up to its highest octave and to really, to really engage in self-sacrifice and to really sacrifice yourself for the kind places, your family, the, the people around you, and to, to live up to those obligations, which maybe going to the fires would be easier, but it's, it's not what we're actually called to do there. In terms of other esoteric orders, I'm, I mean, we're gonna find high degrees of, of correlation between anything that was touched by Greece or Egypt or you know, Israel or Europe, which is, goodness, most of the earth at this point in time. Um, you know, so you're gonna find a lot of correlation between that and you know, the, the Druids would have known and been well aware of even like the illusion mysteries and things like that. So a lot of the, a lot of the lodge structures and things, there's actually lodges for Druidry as well that are very hard to find and work with, but they're during the, during the same time the masonry was starting some of the, some of the people trying to resurrect Druidry said, well, we need our lodges too. And they, they founded lodges during that time as well. Hmm. But, uh, the um the when you talk about the east we can really only talk about it in terms of uh of correlation and not direct relationship uh there may have been relationship there uh, as i as an overarching project i try to track shamanism as it existed throughout the world and how it converged in these different places just as a personal thing and there is some evidence to suggest that Egypt and, and the East, the Far East, had, had some correlation there between each other. So there may be some actual links in there. Most of that, though, probably comes out of India and, and, uh, and everything. So you can see a much more, much more definitive pattern as you go from India to China to Japan to, you know, up through Korea and those areas like that. And they move entirely different. Some of that's because because there wasn't a lot of repression uh, in the West. We had so much repression over the esoteric ideas. You know, you could be burned at the stake and all of these things. So they were encoded into to things in a very subtle way. In the East, they became completely philosophical, which diminished it in its own way. It took it out of the domain of practice and into the domain of, of mental exercise, you know, but it was able to, to grow itself into a, a much different kind of tradition and wear itself on its sleeve a lot easier. So. 
do you think that, uh, say somebody, perhaps they're not religious or not spiritual, maybe they are even in their anti-religious phase, which of course for some people lasts their whole life. Do you think that Truetry would have insights and wisdom for a person like this or for the sort of modern secular world at large? I was listening to a debate between a, a Druid friend of mine and another Christian and one of the points that he made was, you laugh at me because I, because I worship the earth. You should be careful, at least I can prove it exists. <laughs> That's a good line. Um, I think, I think that no matter how you approach approach, you know, these more sensitive and more esoteric kind of things, you're going to lead yourself back to the same kind of thing. And if you're somebody that doesn't really look at spirit and doesn't really look at that, as I was talking about the plants, as you really engage with them and you really look and see there is this life force, there is this underpinning to all of this, it's going to drive you in the same kind of direction. And, you know, you can't look at a forest and not understand the interconnections between all things. And it's going to drive you to a different philosophy just through natural observation. And if that's more comfortable than, than imagining, uh, you know, a God in your mind, then, then I would fully encourage you to do it. The, the essence of the, of the lessons that you're going to learn out of it will be the same. Well, I think that's a, a great note to start wrapping up on. So thanks again, Father. Uh, again, uh, I learned a lot over this uh, uh, this last 45 minutes or so. And uh, I thank you so much. And uh, Kathleen, uh, always fantastic to have you here. Uh, but before we go, uh, some commercials. We'll start with a commercial for the excellent work that Kathleen is doing. And that's uh, Instagram.com slash Talknosis. So uh, Kathleen is helping us out on all of our social media. We're really active on Facebook maybe sometimes too active. So uh, we're trying to build up the Instagram. So please uh, follow us there. See all the awesome stuff that Kathleen's putting out on our Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. You can find us all at Talknosis. Um, we have to end with uh, a more obvious commercial, which is please give us money if you can. If you can't, I completely understand. I don't have any of it myself. But if you want to support us for as little as a dollar per piece of media per month, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Gnostic. If you want to support the work that we're doing, helping to introduce people to a wide range of spiritual traditions, as well as the heart of Gnosticism. If you want to help to spread the light of Gnosis and you're not financially able to do it, again, I completely understand. So feel free to share this show. Uh, put it on your social media, uh, like and subscribe on YouTube, leave a comment, even take the link and send it to a friend who you think might be interested uh, in tonight's show. And by doing that, you really help us immensely. And uh, we thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Kathleen. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you gotta send the love. Yeah. So, I don't uh, think my hands do that. Oh. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thanks again so much, Father. And uh, I guess this is uh, Talk Gnosis signing off. Uh, good night, good luck, and Godspeed, everybody. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.